Welcome to another episode of Canine Roll Call Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Ferguson, here with uh, co-host Shana Parsno. Uh, we've got a, an awesome show coming up for you here. We're, we're super excited to have two guests on today. And um, we're going to start off with uh, Jake Simmons. If you'll kind of give us a little background, a little bit about you, where you're from. So I'm Jake Simmons. Uh, a lot of people know me from the LEO Canine Discussion Group. I started that about four or five years ago. I'm from a little county in, in Tennessee called White County. Um, we've got about 30,000 people, um, about 400 square miles. Been working full-time on the road now for four years with them. Been part-time with them for an additional probably two on top of that. So six years total there. Um, still running the same dog I started with. Um, seeing the, the unit go from six dogs to down to two right now. So some big changes. So that's a little bit about me. So you were up at six, now yeah. down to two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we had some that got retired out, and some that had some unfortunate events, and no longer with us. But awesome, good, good group of guys initially. Still is, I guess. But awesome, awesome. Thanks for being with us. And up next, we've got Mike Goosby here as well, with a little different perspective from a little bigger agency. <laughs> That's a little bit. Yeah, Mike Goosby, um, recently and happily retired from the Los Angeles Police Department. I worked the. Uh, Metro Canine Platoon for 25 of my 32 years on the department. Uh, we are a little bit different. We had uh, we have 19 dogs in our unit, all single purpose, search for bad guys, seek you shall find, and we have um, five gun detection dogs. We have 24 total. But LAPD is a very organic department, so they like to specialize in everything. And they like to rely on subject matter experts, right? So, Narcotics has their own dogs. They have 12 of their own dogs. Bombs has 16 of their own dogs. And then we have another bomb squad has five of their own dogs. So we have a lot of dogs in the city, but they're just all doing single purpose work. Cool. So what, what we're hoping to do with this particular episode is a bit of sort of compare contrast, sort of looking at smaller departments and how they operate, some of the challenges they face, those types of things, and then sort of compare and contrasting that with a bigger agency, probably one of the biggest in the U.S., if not the biggest in the U.S. Um, so I just want to try to carry this thing through sort of chronologically um, and, and talk a little bit about um, how your agency sort of starts. Um, and I think maybe with handler selection. Uh, how does the agency start with handler selection? And I think we can move then into um, dog selection. So with my agency, we actually took a book out of Mike's page. I've got some information from him. Um, when I, I come in as a consultant years and years ago at the department, that's how I got into the canine stuff because it's, it seems like I, I got into canine real fast when you look at how long I've actually been with the department and running a dog, but there was a lot of a lot of work on the front end of that. Um, but we got with Mike, and uh, we do an oral board. We do, you know, you got to have your resume turned in. Um, we do a physical fitness test now, and uh, we do home visits. We check with the spouses. We try to we try to do a, a, a full on you know handler selection process. It's not just anybody can come in off the street and run a dog. So that's it's helped a lot. Are there any particular prerequisites to apply? Um, you can, not really, and I'll be honest with you, it's because we don't have that many people applying for the job just for, you know, just to be a patrol guy. Um, so when we start selecting canine handlers, it's kind of, it's slim pickings. Understood. How, how does it work um, in a big city? Ours is a little bit more involved, I'd say. Uh, so <laughs> first thing you got to do is you have to have at least four years on the department. You have at least four years on the department, and eligible for a uh, P3 position. And we mean by P3, and most departments call it corporal. you got to have two stripes to come into the unit. Uh, we start off with a uh, – we do an orientation just to get the interest up and see who's interested in coming. We usually get about 
40 or 50 people come to that. And then we'll talk about the job, uh, what it entails, what's expected of you as a handler. And just the orientation alone, oftentimes we'll whittle that down to about 30, 30 40 people, right? And then uh, we do a physical fitness qualification. That's the first level of, uh, of where we're going to start cutting people out. They got to pass the physical, physical qualification. Once they pass the PFQ, then uh, we move on to our canine skills day, the people who pass the PFQ. The canine skills day is basically a day of uh, they got to pass an OB course. They have to go through a, uh, a sequence of fire on the front with uh, three different weapons for firearms and qualify with those. And then they have to go through a, uh, a problem solving uh, situation. We'll have the uh, FOSS simulator up, the force option simulator, and we'll throw three different scenarios at them. And they're there with their, uh, their FOSS weapons and their decision making and their, te- and their, they have less lethal, um, tools at their availability as well. So they got to go we'll see what their, their decision-making skills are. They go through that and then they go through a perimeter problem. We, we have a, a situation unfold in front of them and then they got to take it to a perimeter and, and see how that transforms. And then once, once we get done with that, those who didn't pass some of those, some of those things are pass fail. If you fail it, you're out the rest of the day, you're done. But the people who've passed all that, then we go up and we do a, uh, uh, some bite work on the field. We do that. And everyone who passed that portion of it, we set them up for ride-alongs. They come on a two-week loan to the unit. And then during their two-week loan, we're, we're assessing them. We're putting them down range on search teams. We're seeing how well they take criticism. They take instruction. Uh, what they're, uh, how, how quick they are to volunteer to do things. How well they gel with small team and small unit dynamics. And then once they, uh, we whittle that down, then we'll do oral interviews. And by the time we do the interview, we pretty much know who we want and who's who in the zoo. So you can't come in an interview and fool me all of a sudden because we've already spent like nine months to a year with you. So this whole process takes about a year. So we've already spent all that time with you, right? And then once we do the interviews, we'll put pools together. We have an outstanding pool, excellent pool, and satisfactory. We don't pull from anyone. We don't take anyone outside the outstanding pool. And those folks from the pool, as we get openings, then we'll pull people from that pool. And we do that uh, every other year. We'll do that. And some years, you know, you might get lucky and we get a couple openings, you get pulled in. There's some guys who've been in that pool four or five years, four or five times in a row before they got into the unit. Because if we don't have openings, we won't pull anybody in. But we always have a pool ready to go in case we need it and we have an opening. Wow. That's <laughs> insane. That's pretty intense. Yeah. That's very intense. Yeah. So um, if you're selected, you're in the excellent. Outstanding pool. Outstanding pool. pool. Yes. Okay. I'm in the outstanding pool, and the year goes by. Do I have to go through this process? You have to go through the whole process whole again. Thing again Absolutely. To stay in the pool. Yes. Okay. Now, what we do sometimes, if we have some, we you know, our outstanding pools are usually pretty good, and I know how competitive it is, and I know the stress involved with doing it. So if I foresee that we're going to have some openings and you're nearing your our outstanding pool is getting near its uh, evolution, it's going to be stopped, I can extend it one more year. And I've done that a couple of times, just to be fair to those guys that are in the outstanding pool, you know. But it just hasn't always worked out that way. Um, how often would you say, on average, you're you're pulling people from that pool and assigning a dog to them? Uh, I'm going to say maybe. Uh, well, it depends because it, it kind of goes in waves, right? So canine for us is a lifetime job. If you want, you can you can get the job and you stay there. It's, there's no cap on it. You know, I got guys. I did 25 years. I got guys that are in the unit now. I've done 26, 27 years. You know. Um, so if someone makes sergeant, you can get it. 
But right now is a good time to try out because right now all of us old bastards are, are getting pushed out of there. So you're going to have a lot of space in there now, right? So I'd say on average, though, probably probably uh, every other every other, every other other two years, you know, you probably get some movement when we're bringing bodies in. Okay. You, you, you mentioned something right there that, that I, I want to sort of pick your brain on a bit. Because old bastards? No. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I fall in that category, so we'll leave that alone. Okay. Uh, no, the the lifetime sort of appointment, if, if you yes. want it, right? So right. we see agencies from time to time, and, and there seems to be sort of two camps on this. We see agencies say, they say, okay, you've been a dog handler. You're done, right? You, you get one dog, and you're done. And then you slide to the side, and we're bringing somebody else in. Right. My opinion is that, you know, those agencies are losing a ton of knowledge, absolutely, ton of experience, without a doubt. Just just to have that opportunity to bring somebody green in, yes, without a doubt, you're giving up a lot of experience. And you know, and and the thing about dog work, you don't really become a true canine handler, at least not in our unit, until about your second two and a half years into the unit. You know, it's when you start really becoming into your own. You've you've gotten a good working relationship with your dog, and you're starting to understand how to navigate the canine world from start to finish you need less and less direction you know so we don't want to give that experience up because for our department at least it's one of the most dangerous jobs not the most dangerous job on the department so and LAPD like I said is very organic so everything is specialized there they like to have subject matter experts you know and so like same thing with SWAT you know you got guys have been in SWAT 25 26 years because it's a, you can stay there as long as you want and that's that's by design we want the respect we want the experience there we want the decision-making process there, you know, and that makes a big difference. You know, if you send a guy, at, it, it, the phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning, we're on standby, the first canine handler that gets there, he's the first person that's unraveling this whole thing, you know. So I'd rather have a guy that's got 10 or 15 years in a unit showing up to that perimeter and, and talking to the incident commander and come up with a plan as some as opposed to someone who's got a year in a unit. You know, they're going to get overwhelmed. So, and – that person with a year in a unit will probably show up with someone that's got about 15 years in a unit so they can work it out, you know, but we want to keep that experience. And it, it makes life a lot easier because we're not in the business of training dogs. We're in the business of working dogs. So as you get more seniority in the unit, when you go into your next dog, well, I've you just cut the training time down from six to nine months to about two to three months, sometimes less than that, you know. So, and also I can take a dog. As a trainer, have a dog trained up. I know someone's getting close to uh, retiring their dog. They've been in the unit 10, 15 years. It's just a matter of handing that dog to them. In a couple of days, that dog's already, I got the dog trained up already. They're up and running. They're on their way. So it just keeps the ball rolling. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Makes sense. All right, let's move, jump ahead a little bit and talk about dog selection. So you've, you've got a handler one way or the other here. Um, how do we decide or how do we make that decision on a dog? How does your agency do it versus yours? My agency pretty much leaves it up to me and I'll, you know, reach out and see who's got what going on and usually try to take a few people with me, a few people that I trust and and we do the selection process through that. Um, fortunately we're, we're pretty small, so that doesn't come up super often. Um, you know, we've got a dog now that's, we've got two, our two dogs that are on are like seven years old. So it'll be coming up again that we'll have to make some selections, but thankfully it doesn't happen too, too often. So so are you buying pre-trained dogs? you buying green dogs, training them in-house? How does that? Pre-trained dogs, mainly because we just don't have the time to, to train them ourselves. And, and you know how the dedication that it takes to do that and trying to find a, a handler that is capable of that and has the knowledge. It's just it's not in our pool. 
Um, I don't have the time to do it myself, or I, you know, we would do we do green dogs, but just time's an issue. So. Yeah, time and resources yeah, can be an absolutely. issue. That's for, a huge resource too, for us. So. You know, five six years ago, Tennessee had plenty of plenty of people to reach out for help. Um, had some really good decoys. We had some good detection people, and then it just it's like everybody just went away. And so I'm on like a little island by myself. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of people that are close by, but and, and that are close to me, but. Um, it's, it's not like it used to be. It's a lot less now. Sure. I do a little different. <laughs> uh, I, I generally go to one vendor, and uh, I usually, what I what I normally do is, if I only need one or two dogs, I go to the vendor and know, hey, I need one or two dogs, and I'll go by there, and I'll test dogs, and uh, it's like dogs there. If I need more than that, then I'll to the vendor know I need more than that, and I would generally travel to Europe with the vendor to uh, select dogs there. And the reason I was doing that is because our vendor also serves uh, some of the military folks uh, the, the, from the Navy and from the Army, and they go over there with them. And if they're there with them, they get first pick of all the dogs, What tells me then that I'm going to get a pick from the B and C dogs as opposed to the A dogs. So I go with the vendor so I can get to select from the A dogs as well because I need the same type of dogs they have for probably even a little bit more so because our dogs are working more than theirs are. So two or three times a year, I'd fly over to Europe with a vendor and travel to Europe and buy, help them buy dogs, and I'll make my selections over there. So when we come back to the States, I just go by the uh, kennel and pick the dogs up that I selected and, and start training. All of our training is done in-house. I want green dogs. I want, the, I want the dogs that were sitting in the dean's office with the dunce cap on. I don't have to know anything. Um, the reason why is because if I get the dog that knows nothing, then – the only thing he knows is what I put in him, and I'm only going to put in him the stuff that I need. I don't have to extinguish any training that he's had prior. I don't have to work on any mistakes that he may have had or things that I deem not necessary to have in him. So everything is just a clean slate, and then I just take what Mother Nature gave him and then build on top of that. When I go test them, I test them for the stuff that Mother Nature gave them that I can't train them to do. I can't train maturity. I can't train bravery. So those things are what I'm looking for the dog to have. I can't train hunt. I can perfect your hunt, but if you don't want to hunt, I can't make you want to hunt. So I test for those things. And as long as they have those things in hand, then they can make it to our training field. Once they make it to our training field, they're going to probably be in training for shit, two to three months. You know, uh, for if it's a dog going to a senior handler. If it's a brand-new dog coupled with a brand-new handler, they're probably going to be in training six to nine months. You know, But, when I, but I make it easier myself. When I bring a handler in brand-new, I don't allow that handler to have a dog for the first two months because I'm going to teach him everything he needs to know about the unit and canine work that's not dog-related. All the weapons qualifications, all the less lethal munitions qualifications, all those things, the search team tactics. So that way, when I start doing dog training, they can focus on dog training because all the other stuff is already been taken care of. So then from that point on, they're probably in training for about nine months. Now, you spoke of, of using the same vendor. How important to you is it? to have that relationship with that vendor. Oh, it's very important, you know. And, I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't, I, I think the best vendor is the vendor that has the, the best dog you need on the day you need one, obviously, you know. But I got to think about the fact that the vendor I have is just miles away from us. So if I have an issue, I can go right there. But I've also built a relationship and a friendship with them, you know. So they know what I want. They know what I'm going to look like. They're not going to waste my time. I'm not going to go there and you're gonna give me 25 dogs to test. And I only need one or two. They're not going to do that. I'm going to get there, and he's going to say, hey, test these two dogs. And that's it. 
take these ears, check these two dogs out. And generally, he shows me two dogs, I'll leave with those two dogs because he knows what I want. He's not going to play games with me. So that, that relationship is good. He's not going to treat me better than anybody else because money still spends money's money. He's not, my money doesn't spend any better than somebody else's money does. But he's not going to waste my time because I'm going to come to him on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. That's really important in a relationship with the vendor. Um, so we've chosen a dog. You're doing in-house training. You're yes. doing pre-trained dogs. So I'm going to, I'm going to speculate here that you're probably using some sort of handler training with whatever vendor you're getting a dog from. Yes, sir. Okay. Well, I, I say that now the last dog we selected come from Tar Heel. And then, uh, when we redone the handler, cause the handler, the prior handler ended up in some trouble and whatnot. Um, we ended up going through you guys for our handler school there. So, okay. Your situation, I'm sure, as you've mentioned, is different uh, and quite a bit more in, in depth than than your average probably handler school through. Oh yeah, it is. Well, well yeah, it is a lot more in depth than the regular handler school. But you know, but we have the resources to do that, though. You know, and it takes longer too. It's not that they're in, they're in training every day they're there, but at the same time though, if we're training and work comes up, then we're gonna stop our training and go to work. You know, so our handlers might stop the training for that night with their dogs and join search teams on other on other canine searches. So our our training, but our training is more in depth because we're doing a lot of off off leash training and off leash work with the dog and search patterns and and and, and uh, search tactics and stuff like that. So we're covering everything, you know, and and proofing it over and over again and testing it over and over again. We have two levels of certification for our dogs. We have a limited certification and a full certification. The limited certification means the dog has shown me everything in training that I need to know for this dog to be a police dog, but it hasn't proven anything to me on the street. So that dog is given a full certification with limited status, which means that for the state of California, for post requirements or for any, any case law or whatever, this dog is fully certified. But for LAPD, he can only search for unarmed suspects. Once he shows me some quality fines and quality engagements with unarmed suspects, then I'll bring them back in and do gas training and some other stuff and munitions training with them, and then he'll be fully certified. And once he's fully certified, he can do all canine searches and SWAT deployments once he's fully certified. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but your guys are all dedicated to dog work. They, correct. They're not answering calls. That's a fact. Not. That's correct. Yeah. Yes, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. So we're a full-time canine unit. The only thing we do is canine work. We don't do any patrol calls, any, any traffic enforcement. We only do canine. Yeah, and that's going to make a, that's a huge big difference. difference. Yeah, yes, yeah, huge doubt. difference. Absolutely. Um, so a little little bit on that. So sort of compare and contrast here as far as as time for training with with an agency like yours. And there's lots of folks out there. Your your LAPD is a bit of an anomaly in mm -hmm. regards to that yes, as far sure. as size and resources. But you know, what's that impact? You know, long term impact, and how does that impact effective overall effectiveness in having limited amount of time training you're answering calls canine on some level has to be secondary it is i mean it's Absolutely. secondary with with you guys it's, it's not not at all correct so like with us um we're training together with another agency uh within our city or you know, within our county um so our training we try to get you know four to eight hours a week so some months is a little short some months is is you know extended we try to get out to these classes and stuff like that, but my primary job is to answer calls and you know civil process. So, with that, canine does take a back a back burner. You can't be proactive, anyways. Now, obviously, if a call comes out that's a, a canine call, 
I'm headed to it. And, and they do try to prioritize some stuff where I'm not getting tied up on things that, you know, I'll, I could be doing more proactive work. And so they, they prior, they, they work the priorities for me. Um, but still like, it's not uncommon for me to answer 40, 50 calls a week. And, uh, when you're answering 40 or 50 calls a week, it's kind of hard to go do dog work. So, yeah, I can so. see those utilizations way down. It does. It does. Yeah. What, um, that's another issue I've seen for years, really, utilizations, and, and, and maybe you guys have some insight um, from a supervisory perspective. You know, supervisors not understanding allocation of their dog teams and, and making solid decisions about their allocation to increase, you know, utilizations and overall effectiveness. You know, things like having your dog team tied up with a, a, a mental commitment at the hospital for 12 hours, you know, a whole shift or whatever the case may be. Um, in lieu of having that individual float, when those resources are available, obviously. Right. But, uh, you know, any insight there? I, I've had three different sergeants. I've finally got a, a sergeant now that uh, is really, really good about understanding that canine does need to be tied up on stuff like that. Um, but I've had sergeants in the past where I was just another another patrol guy that just happened to have a dog. And then you know, it, it becomes a conflict because you want to get out, you want to do, do work, you know, and uh, – You've got admin above the sergeant who's like, why are you not doing anything? Why are you not producing? It's like, well, look at my call log. Look at the CAD last week. I was tied up a whole week. Um, I've been fortunate. This this new sergeant that took over, I think he took over in the first part of February, he's been really good about making sure I don't get tied up on stuff. And, and we've seen the numbers go up quite a bit just in you know, since February. Um, sort of along with that is is the, you know, canine's not a one-man band kind of thing, right? right? And and there are resources that are necessary for establishing perimeters, that sort of thing. I'm sure it looks different for... You said for, a what? A, 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 a what? A perimeter? <laughs> what the hell is that? Yeah, I'll get Mike to explain it to you. I'm sure they've done one or two. Yeah, <laughs> maybe so. But, you know, but the problem, though, that, you know, the, the, the canine community, unfortunately, has, has caused... The, the problems that we have with the supervisors. And what I mean by that is, you know, Jake just said he's been to three supervisors. Most of these supervisors have no idea about canine work and what it takes to actually do canine work. Where the canine community kind of makes it a worse problem is they offer these, these canine supervisor classes. They offer these classes, they go in, they get some case law, and now they walk out of there thinking they're canine experts. And so now they're, they're making decisions over a canine handler who knows the dog needs and knows a little bit more about the job because they've been to this damn class that tells them that, oh, I know I'm a canine supervisor. I've been to a canine supervisor course. And they don't truly understand what it takes for that dog to be working every day or training on a regular basis, what that, what that, that, that has to look like, you know. That cadence, that training cadence has to be consistent. They don't understand that part of it because – They've been in and they've been taught how to run a canine unit. And that's how they run it. So that's kind of a, I don't do canine supervisor courses for that reason. I've had departments call me up and say, hey, uh, can you do a canine supervisor course? I said, no. What you can do is send your supervisor to me and they can ride along with me for a week and they'll see what it takes for a canine supervisor to, to run a canine unit. And they'll even with uh, Danny, the her, they, her department's hair sergeant out to me for a week. And so you got a chance to see this is what your dogs need. This is what your teams need. This is what your folks need. You know, they don't need you to know case law. I mean, that's that's fine and dandy, you know, but 
That's why we have city attorneys and stuff like that. They handle that. You'll never be a sergeant standing in front of me in court and testifying on my behalf with your case law knowledge, okay? I'm going to have the department has lawyers for that. So those are things that we don't think about. Our unit, obviously, is a dedicated unit. So we have a dedicated squad of six supervisors. Uh, we have six supervisors. And of those six, uh, I'm the trainer. So I select the dogs. I select I, – I, make the final decisions on the hound selection. Those sergeants have a, play, a, a role on that as well. But they don't make dog decisions. They don't make training decisions. Those all come from me. They handle field supervisor duties. You know, if the dogs are downrange working, they're at the command post helping the handlers out. If the handlers need something. They need tools brought downrange, they take it down there. They're converse, having conversations with the, with the incident commander and making sure the thing uh, runs smoothly. But that's where the departments kind of fall short, though. Same thing with their handlers, that they're having a handler work a dog, and then they move on and bring a new handler in. Well, the same thing with a supervisor. You know, most of these departments, they, they make their supervisors and their canine thing is an ancillary duty. And with it being an ancillary duty, they're going to spend more time on their other duties by nature of the job because the canine work doesn't produce as much as the other stuff does. And so the ancillary duty, it starts, it just starts whittling away, you know, and they're, and they're, they're, answer to that is let me just send them to a canine supervisor school and they'll come back. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You know, and I, I have departments that I train in Southern California and they've pretty much gotten on board with it. Understanding they're, they, they're, they've made it dedicated canine sergeant spots, you know, and that makes a huge difference. It makes a huge difference when it comes to, to the dogs working, but also getting work produced for that dog. Because now that supervisor is not just a sergeant or a supervisor, they're an advocate for the unit now. And as an advocate, they're out there telling the other officers, hey, we need to establish perimeters. We need to do this. We need to do that. Because they have an understanding of what that dog needs in, in order to be a true asset for that department. Yeah, and I, I think one of the biggest things, um, and this is, again, my opinion, I think one of the biggest things that supervisors can do is get out there and see. Absolutely. You know, get out there and train, train yes. with these guys. You know, you don't have to be at every single session, but you need to know what's going on. Uh, you need to know what, as you mentioned, resources right. these teams need. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does it take to do the training? What does it take to effectively deploy these dogs in an operational environment in a way that's going to be safe and right. effective? Uh, and, and we see it time and time again, supervisors who oftentimes don't have a clue, you know, uh, and because they're with a lot of agencies, they're, okay, you're, you're over this division, so guess what? You're going to be over K-92. And, exactly. and they have no yep. prior knowledge, no, exactly. no prior experience, right. never been a handler. Right. And now throw that same supervisor to a, a K-9 supervisor class. Now they think they know it all. They don't, I don't need to go watch them train. I already know how, I knows how this works now. That's, what, that's where I say the K-9 community, we kind of create that sometimes, you know. Sometimes we make overnight experts, and that's not, there's no such thing as that. You know? Yeah, well, again, I think anybody who goes through a supervisory course uh, for any period of time and walks away from that thinking there's some sort of subject matter expert and has some <laughs> absolutely real without a doubt real yes. unreasonable yes um, right expectation from exactly. that particular program yeah so, so you know, i agree the sergeants need to be there watching the training see what the dogs are doing understanding how they work yeah without a doubt um so one other quick one here before we take a break um that sort of came up and and it comes up a lot, and that's retreads. What we what we we call a retread. You may have a different name for it. Um, any thoughts on how those are dealt with? We get a lot of agencies who believe that once a dog's paired with a handler, it can't be paired with another handler down the road if that handler were to quit or have an injury. You know, and a lot of times we see dogs that are retired really early. 
uh, just because, uh, again, there's this belief that it can't be retreaded, as we put it, with somebody new. I'm really fortunate that my department pretty much gives me free reign on decisions like that. And, you know, I've got a strong enough background that obviously I know I know what can be done, what can't be done. So we don't have any issues with that at all. Um, we have more issues with the, the finance side of retreads than we do anything. Um, we've got a dog now that he's, he's seven, I believe he's seven now, and he's obviously fixing to be retreaded. And uh, it's become a, a predicament because he's now this way his third handler. And so they're they're sick of paying for schools over and over and over again, and that's why this whole the handler selection came up. That's why I got with Mike and I've got with some other people to revamp that because obviously the selection process wasn't working the way that it was. Um, but trying to convince them that hey, now that we've got the right person, or we've got we've got we're looking at two different candidates right now, and they're both solid. Um, it's like trying to convince them that those two guys are worth spending that money to send that guy to handler school, that dog back through school. Um, it's been it's been challenging, but he, I mean he's seven years old. It's he's right there at that that age where maybe you should retire him, but he's he's got years left in him. He's he acts like a puppy. He's a, he's a good strong dog. So we'll see. Sure. Yeah, I uh, uh, yeah. If I if I have a dog that the handler's leaving and the dog is still working age, that dog stays with the unit. I just reassign it, you know, without a doubt. And if I get a handler that's going to be out for. Nine months to do the shoulder surgery, something like that, and I have another handler needs a dog. I just take that dog from that handler. He's gonna work him to the handler comes back to work. You know, yeah, it's it's a no brainer. Okay, yeah, yeah. it just the, for some reason there seems to be this belief that that's an impossibility. Well, so but that goes back to the education part, though. You know, I mean, if you have departments who don't know, and then they're getting information from other departments who don't know, or they're getting or they getting information from a handler who is being self. Is, trying to be self-serving, you know, I'm trying to be self-serving here and tell the department, well, you know, there's a dog bonding with me and my family. Can't go work with anybody else. So that's what they end up believing. It's just lack of education, you know. But these dogs, please, they'll, whoever's driving me and feeding me, I'm going to go with them. We, yeah, that's just, without a doubt. We dealt with that a little bit when the when our first handler left, that we had to retrade him the second time. The the department was kind of like, oh, he, he can't he can't rebond. I'm like, you just, you just let me handle this. Yeah, right, no, exactly. Let's, let's keep failings yeah. out of this. Let, let's just... Let me handle it. Yeah, and that sort of emotional thing gets in the way sometimes, and you know we get that a lot. You know, can can the can the dog bond with, um, you know, somebody else? Well, you got to understand, it's probably only third person before it makes it to the United States. Exactly. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. They they can definitely do that. But we, I, you know, that's another thing though. I I kind of so I kind of control. The people side of things too in our unit, you know. So it's you know, nineteen hounds sometimes like herding cats, right? So I don't allow your bond to become that strong with your dog in the first place. What I mean by that is, your bond with your dog is going to be spent in training and in working on a canine search downrange. At home, there is no bond. At home, he's in a kennel. You feed him, you let him out the break, have a good time, whatever. But a little bit, but he's not in your house. He's not laying on the floor with your kids. He's not you know hanging out with your other dogs. He's not a family dog. If you want a family dog, go buy them a Labrador Retriever. You'll be happy with it. But he's a working dog, and so he's going to be treated as such. So I kind of control that. You know, if I see that they're posting their dog with their family on in social media, you know, that's strike one. I see it again, oh, bye-bye, you're out of here. So those kind of things like that, you know. I don't allow any of that stuff because I'm not going to play games here with it. i got 19 people, and we're in the business of working dogs, you know. So people say, well, you've been kind of hard-ass about it. Yeah, I am, you know, because we put a lot of money into buying and selecting this, selecting this dog. 
put a lot of money into training you with this dog. I'm not going to have you go home now and do some stupid stuff with it where I'm not getting my bang for my buck out of this. You know, so, yeah, I, I, I don't need him to be, they, well, they're not, they, don't need, they need to be social. He is social with other cops. They go down range searching. I don't need him to be social with your kids. There's no reason for that. He's in the kennel, you know, so that's how we do that. We kind of, we kind of keep that. Our guys don't, our guys view their dogs as a tool for sure. They view that as a tool and a, and a tool that they can use as a means to take suspects into custody. So that we, that's, that's definitely how we look at it. So I don't get a whole lot of that stuff. You know, and I think that any one of our guys that if they went down for, if they're going to go, I've had guys that promote out of the unit and they got a, a younger dog. They're like, hey, so and so needs a dog. He's going to take, the, he can take Roscoe or take Ringo. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not, it's not really a big deal for us. Fair enough. After the break, we're going to figure out how thick uh, these policy manuals are for each department. So be sure to stay with us. Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. The individual health of every dog is as unique as they are. However, these health needs are often characteristic of their size, breed, or lifestyle. Each individual recipe is formulated to deliver the exact level of natural antioxidants, vitamins, fiber, prebiotics, and minerals that are essential to your pet's unique health needs. Discover how Royal Canin products can help every pet enjoy its best health possible. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandCanine.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference. Thanks for staying with us. We're back with uh, Jake and Mike Goosby here talking um, big agency, small agency. So, um, as I alluded to right before that break, so how many pages do you guess that uh, canine policy is? Six pages. Six pages Six long. Six pages. And rough guess on yours? <laughs> Probably 150. 150. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a pretty marked difference there. Um, how do you think things would look if you had to use his policy? You know, it probably wouldn't be such a bad thing, but 150 pages. I don't know that I could wrap my brain around that. <laughs> um, we've got we've got the ability to do a lot of a, a neat things, and 
and luckily we, we kind of self-govern and we are uh, definitely harder on ourselves than our policy is and so we're really fortunate that the policy is written well it's protective um, but we also have some free reign because we're controlled about it um, you know we we could probably get a lot more apprehensions of what we do but we're pretty uh, strict on what we're allowed to do and what we're not you know stricter on ourselves than what that policy is yeah, and you're dealing with probably an equation of more people, more problems. So, that, well, that, yeah. So you know, uh, LAPD again is a very large department. It's ten thousand people, right? And so there's got to be a, you got to have some. You got to be very well organized to manage that amount of people, and especially in a very litigious arena like the city of Los Angeles. Um, so those things come into play. Uh, also, you know, our canine unit years ago, back in 1989, 1990, we almost lost the unit because of lawsuits. So from that, there was a huge settlement, and that settlement required us to change a lot of things we do. So, you know, to him, who much is given, much is expected. So the department has a lot of policies in place, but those policies aren't all there for restrictions, but they're all there for a guideline and, as, and, and, and a rule and a procedural way of doing things, right? So that way, if you step out of that and you cause a problem, we have, you, you've been notified is how we do things. And we like things to be very organized. So our policy, it goes everything from how you're going to uh, conduct the dog search, where you're going to search, what approvals you need for the search. It's going to talk about the announcements. It's, it's going to cover everything from A to Z. Even goes into how you're going to be expected to groom the dog and care for the dog and, and how many times how, and how clean the car needs to be and all this stuff. We lay everything out. So there's no question when I come knocking on your door if there's a problem, you know. And again, with 19 handlers, it's like herding cats sometimes. So you want to make sure everything is all laid out. And we don't want any, any independent contractors. You know, everyone does everything the same exact way. So it's, and, and it's, it's, we're policy heavy. I think LAPD as a department is policy heavy. But I, I'm not going to sit here and say that didn't come without cause either, you know. So our, our policy is pretty thick. Limiting people's ability to freelance. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no freelancers here. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but we're very, but I think as a, if you look across California, our, our criteria for using a dog is probably a lot more lenient than most departments, you know, but I think they're willing to be that lenient with it because we have all those policies and procedures in place to kind of make us ironclad as long as we follow the guidelines. So kind of helps out. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, what does, what does continued maintenance look like? You, you talked about getting together with another agency, um, so, you know, we see that a lot with smaller agencies sort of combining resources for training opportunities. I'm sure you guys are probably pretty limited in doing that if, if you do it at all. Or What's that? Working with other agencies uh, consistently we, in training. Oh, consistently? No. Yeah. We, we invite we, – we, I haven't opened our – I always had opened our policy to uh, Unison and come on train. But the problem with it is, though, is like, you know, it's kind of a uh, – for lack of a better term – you know, departments are wary of being on display in front of LAPD K-9, you know, because they're looking at us as a big brother here. And so it's not that we're better than them. It's just that we're larger. We have all these resources. We get more work than anybody else. So it's kind of like I don't want to embarrass myself in front of those guys, you know. But we do have some departments that come out. They, you know, Glendale PD come out quite often with us. They had a handler. I said, we had 19, we had K-9-19. I used to call him K-9-21. Because he's a Glendale guy, who's always at our training, so I gave him, gave him a canine number. You were part of the unit now, son. But um, <laughs> but we train every night, you know. So we haven't opened our policy. We train every single night, and so we haven't opened our policy. But most departments don't come out and don't come out and do it. Okay. They do have their groups that they train with themselves, you know. But uh, 
they don't come out. But at the same time, though, too, is that our training, we train every night, but it's going to be based off of what kind of work we get. So if a department gives their folks permission to come out and train with us and they get a rep in, all of a sudden we got to go to a search and leave, then they're kind of just standing there, you know. So it depends. We, we do, though, is uh, I have it where we have some departments send their folks on loan for a couple of weeks. So what happens is they come on loan to our unit for a couple of weeks. They can't run their dogs, but I take them down range on searches. They can get involved in the tactics and the search team and all that stuff. So, so we just, we definitely train with. I'm the same way. I've got an open door policy. Um, I've been that's been one of my big pushes from the very very beginning is you got to get out, get outside your circle. You yes, know, and, absolutely. And I'm very much on the board where you know if if I've got something I'm having trouble with, I'm going to bring somebody who knows what yes. you know, knows how to fix that in. Because of that, we've got some solid dogs. We've always had solid dogs, um, nice. at least in the last few years. Um, but we run into the same thing where people don't want to come because of ego or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and I travel quite a bit and do a lot of training and different seminars and stuff. And the more that I've got out there and the more people that have, you know, met me and, and realized that I'm not here to degrade you. Exactly. I'm, I'm here to help you. And, and I'm going to pick up something from you. It's not all about me teaching you or vice versa. I've started to having people, more people take me up on the opportunity to come train we still have some agencies that are local that are just, you know, they're not going to have it. And you, you hear horror stories about how their training days go, and it, and it's because they won't get out of their circle, um, which is it's, it's a shame, but it is what it is. Yeah, I think being open-minded and having that learning mindset is is critical to the overall success of any team. Absolutely. Always Absolutely. asking why, always wondering if there are ways to improve, do better. I think it's incredibly important. You have to. It's, it's the efficient way, and I guess for me it's my ADHD. You know, my ADHD, I'm just – I got to be as good as I can be in everything that I do, and and that goes down to my dog. I want him to do everything as proficient as he can, and uh, I'm smart enough to know that I don't know everything, so I bring in the people who do. Switching gears a little bit here, what what do you think is probably the biggest challenge that you face as a as a canine? Um, team in your agency that the larger agencies don't and sort of vice versa? I would say for me, uh, finances is usually an issue, um, whether it's buying new equipment, whether it's going to training seminars, you know, just to come up here, you know, they didn't, they've not got a dollar in it other than the first tank of gas in my patrol car and they let me drive my patrol car, which was nice. I mean, they didn't have to do that. So I appreciate that, but um, they just don't have the funds to do stuff like that. So for me to, to really continue my education much, I've got to reach out to people and find alternate means because the department just can't do it. Um, I don't think we have very many uh, things that hinder us in our unit. I think, the, I think, I think the one thing that would separate us from say a smaller agency, like uh, say Jake's would be that I think if Jake wanted to do something, go to a seminar or, go train somewhere or do something else outside of his department, he probably has one person he goes to, maybe two at the most, to give him permission to do it. Or ours, you know, I got to get, I, my guys have to get permission from me, then I got to get permission from the, from the lieutenant, he's got to get permission from the captain, he's got to get permission from the commander, who's got to get overall commit permission from the deputy chief. So it's a lot of freaking uh, rungs to climb on that ladder to get permission to go do something. It happens rather quickly, you know, but – there is always everyone's checking and balancing all the way up in a department like ours. Like for me to go to my first time to go to Europe, it always go all the way to the chief of police office, you know, it's, which once he approved it, though, I never had to do it again, but it's just all those layers of getting it done. And sometimes it can become problematic if you need something done like right now, you know, so that's why I think it would be the biggest thing is the bureaucracy of it. Sure. Sure. 
Um, where do you see the differences in um, in your abilities based on the resources you have or or don't have uh, in in your case? I mean, LAPD's probably got storage warehouses full of rooms. Um, I mean, um, uh, resources and, and and different things that your your guys are training with, utilizing in the field. Um, you know, you mentioned munitions before. A lot of dog teams don't get the train around that. No. So, well, yeah, our department, as far as resources like that, I mean, I, I tell people, you know, our canine unit is probably outfitted either as equal to or better than most departments' SWAT teams other than, say, armored vehicles and sniper rifles, which you don't need those. We don't need the sniper rifles, right? But, I mean, as far as weaponry, our handlers are uh, – they get uh, one, two, three, four, five different weapon systems assigned to them. They get less lethal uh, munitions assigned to them. They get uh, forty millimeter launchers, beanbag shotguns assigned to them. They get uh, tack vest helmets. They get get handheld gas uh, assigned to them. So we get all that. So we have resources, you know. But again, to him who much is given, much is expected at the same time. Our department expects us to be a stopgap. They expect us to be a problem-solving unit, you know. So they expect us to act and, and operate in a certain manner. So they give us a lot of resources to do that. Yeah, I get a taser and pepper spray. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll get those, too, dude. Yeah, we'll get those as well. Well, yeah. I, th- I think, too, it's important to understand if, you, if you, you're limited in resources, if you've got every resource on the planet, not saying you do, but right. obviously a lot more than an agency like Jake's, you know, I think there has to be this understanding that um, none of that replaces good training. Oh, absolutely no. not. No, and, that, and they, again, they, they expect that they know we're – we have the ability to train every night, you know, and so they expect a certain level of expertise and, 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 and workmanship out there, you know. But again, you know, but also they don't, they expect those things as well, but I don't, I don't have to, they don't ask me anything. I don't, I don't have to get permission to buy a dog. I don't have to get permission to go anywhere. I can go buy a dog anywhere I want. You know, the only thing I had to get permission when I was leaving the country to go to Europe. Once that was solidified the first trip, it's no big deal now, you know, so I can buy they if you got a hold of my command staff, they couldn't tell you how many dogs we had, what the dogs' names are, where they came from. They don't all they care about is are they finding bad guys safely and are they doing it with risk management in mind? Are they being fiscally safe as well? So I get a, I do get a lot of leeway in that arena, you know. And as far as resources and stuff like that go, we do have a budget from the department, but we also have a very robust uh donor program too. That we get a lot of stuff from outside, uh, outside from donors. the community, from the community. Yeah. Okay. I say the department has a bought a police dog and shit, excuse my French. Uh, <laughs> they haven't bought a police dog in probably 15, 20 years, maybe. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so they've been funded by the community. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. That yeah. is awesome. Yeah. That is yeah. definitely something a yeah. lot of agencies don't have. Yeah. <laughs> it's that same community support. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely. huge. Yeah. Certification. Talk certification for just a bit here. Um, what does that look like for, for you guys there in Tennessee? So, obviously, Tennessee doesn't have a state certification, so we run NNDDA at my department. Uh, that's pretty much what we do with that. So, you're you're hosting somebody to come in? Is that We like? usually travel out. So, I, I try okay. to not use the same judge more than one year in a row because I like my dog to be seen by multiple people. Just, you know, we get stamped every year from whatever we're certifying in and try to get 
somebody that's never seen him before because I like an unbiased opinion. Um, I want to know where my weaknesses are to work with him. And so we do that with all of our all of our dogs. Like I said, right now, it's just I'm the only handler on the department right now. Um, we're selecting that second one. But at, at one time, we had six, and that was the same for all six of them. We try to hit a different judge every year. So. And you guys? Um, we certified house. I'm not a huge fan of certifications, to be honest with you. Um, I, I, I think I see too many cases of rubber stamping going on where dogs are certified, but what you're seeing on that paper is not just seen in real-world field work, you know. Uh, so, I mean, cause, and uh, we haven't certified. We certified in-house since inception of our unit. We do all of our in-house training, and uh, I certify three times a year, you know. So, actually, four times a year, once a quarter. So, we yeah, we certify – once a quarter, and uh, we do it all in house. That's held up in every level of state and civil and federal court, you know. Because again, I mean, you can I can certify through ten, ten different people. I can certify. I can have ten different people come in and certify me in, in ten days in a row. And then on day eleven, and I can go out there and do some really bonehead thing or get a really bad bite. And guess what? Thus, ten days didn't mean anything anymore. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. you know, that's the way we look at it. So. But we're very stringent on it. I, my certifications, Post has a recommended certification, but we supersede that by by miles probably. You know, uh, My certifications are, are mostly scenario-based because, again, you know, I can have a dog in a field with a guy in a bite suit out there doing this, that, and the other, but that's not, that's not real work. That's not a real test of the handler or the dog. So I make them certify through scenario-based training. More, what I mean by that is, Okay, I know why I want to see if, well, we verbal out any, everything anyway. All of our searches, our dogs verbal out. We don't do any hard outs. We verbal out everything anyway. So I know they're going to verbal out because they got to verbal out you know, in the real world, right? But during my certifications, I set up scenarios where the handler has to problem solve and get from point A to point B. But along that way, he has to work his dog the proper way too. You know, I have, uh, I get my verbal outs. I get my, my verbal, my recall, you know, I get all that stuff. I get my long distance out, all that, but it's in a scenario based thing during the course of say, I set up a canine search and my decoys might are going to be pre-planned to do certain things to require the handler to do certain things, you know? And so i see that in the real world. That, that lets me know how this handler's going to do it in the field more so than stand on a, on a training field doing it. I really like the integration of critical thinking. Yeah, there. it makes them think about stuff, you know. And so it, it gives me a real, it gives me a, and, and, and the other reason why I don't, I'm not a big fan of certifications is that for us, I shouldn't have any dog fail certification because we're training every night. So there shouldn't be any surprises for me on certification day, come certification day. If I'm seeing you train every night, then certification should just be a, a, a click of the box because this is something we have to do, right? But uh, if I should, I should be seeing a problem way before certification. There should be no. There should be a dog to come in and the handler goes, "Well, I don't know, might be shaky." No, if that's the, if that happens, then we have a problem. Yeah, and I, to that point, I think with anybody, uh, no, their I, their training should I exceed should. far I exceed agree. what's expected. You know, right. we get a lot of folks who get nervous about certs. Uh, well, that's you know, my reason why I'm not a big fan of certifications because, okay, so you just beat the dog's brains out. For the last two days, it get through twenty five minutes of certification, but then you go back to being a, a, a soup sandwich. It doesn't work out. <laughs> yeah, what, what what's a long term impact exactly. of those two days? You exactly know, over the course exactly. of the next year or whatever. And you see want. it all the time, though. You'll see handlers leave that certification field and be, "Whew, I got through. I'm certified," and they think they're fine because they passed it, and they go back to the same bad habit, the same things. You know, so. Yeah, and we've we've advocated for scenario based yeah. training. You cannot stress that yeah. enough. 
the, the scenario-based training and certification because, again, it feels, feels to me like there's a lot of certs out there still who are really looking primarily at the dog. We're not looking at that decision-making right. of the handler, which is critical right. in an operational environment. And I, do, I don't think it's being, uh, again, scrutinized in certification, testing, no. and training like it should no. be. Well, I think it's probably one of the things that it needs to be added to that I think that a lot of people are missing is in their training records. Being able to prove that you're doing the scenario based training and Absolutely. and the problem solving. Absolutely. Uh, not every call is a dog call, right. you know, and and not every not every situation needs that dog. So I think having that documented that your guy can make the decision of whether or not he needs to be sending that dog um, and being able to to have that in your records is huge. Right. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we look uh, look at really hard when we're testing. You know, do, does that does that handler have the legal authority right to deploy a dog in this situation right. and then how is how's the dog responding if they do or if they don't um i think that's incredibly uh, incredibly important um as well record keeping how does that differ or does it you think how do you how do you how's your record keeping? we run pack track and okay i mean so you use an online system you know, everything we do is you know put down in it so okay and is it or, or is somebody responsible for Reviewing that, looking yeah, so, over it. So my lieutenant, he's over just reviewing it. Okay. Um, obviously, I'm over the unit and kind of being over the unit and being the only handler right now has got its perks. But uh, he, he definitely, there's checks and balances to it. Probably not like what yours is, though. Yeah. I'd say Mike's is a lot more stringent. Yeah, so our, our, our IT department developed a, uh, a, a tracking system for me for our uh, training records and all that stuff, and I have to approve them. And then there's certain things that during nights of training, I'll tell the guys, hey, make sure you put this in the training log as this, or, you know, make sure you document this, especially if I'm working on a problem or something like that, you know, because that training log doesn't just serve to uh, to cover our butts in, in the long run, but it also gives me, you know, I'm old, you know, I can go back to the training log and look, oh, yeah, I'm working on this, and we did this, oh, we did this last week, so we need to go here now, you know, so I, it gives me a running tab of, of real-world time of what we do with the dog, or if I'm off for a couple of nights, and another trainer was working. I should be able to look at that training log and tell what they did. Okay, you guys are working on this. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to advance from there to this. We usually talk and stuff like that, but the training logs are fail safe that gives me that insight of what I'm working on, what the dog's had, what the dog needs, you know. I could imagine being 19 dogs not being able to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And then I approve all the training logs. Once I sign off on it, it's, it's gold. It's done. It doesn't go anyplace else. It stays in the dog's package in the office. All right, so looking at, um, uh, you know, moving dogs out at the end of their career, what, is that, what does that look like for you guys? How do you make that decision? Um, what happens to the dog after retirement? Well, for me, uh, my dog's actually leased through the department. I've had him since he was seven weeks old, so it's in his contract that he comes home to me. Um, and to be honest with you, that's how it's pretty much been for all the dogs that we've had. Um, they've retired with their last handler, so um, it's not a real big crazy process or anything it's some paperwork to sign over you know liability and whatnot right. and some contracts that you're going to at least keep the the health and wellness of the dog and grooming and stuff like that and then it's adios amigo yeah we just do a release of liability and the dog goes to the handler if the handler wants it if the handler doesn't want the dog because they get another police dog and they don't have room blah 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 it's very rare but if it happens i got like a line of people are always in in line with their hands up to take one of our retired dogs. So I don't even have a problem with it usually. But usually it goes to the handler. They just sign release liability and the dog is theirs. And do you guys, uh, are you watching the 
the performance of the dog to retire, or are you yeah, retiring so, out at a certain age? No, or? no, no. I'm watching the dog. Yeah, the dog's going to dictate when I retire him. You know, I start seeing that little glaze eye look or that little slower move, you know, and they start moving a little slow and stuff like that. I'm like, okay. And it's not just, you know, it's twofold, right? One is for the health of the dog, but also, number two is for the safety of the unit, too. You know, the dog, our, our, our dogs get challenged a lot. They do, you know, our, our dogs get, they, they do a lot of crazy stuff, you know. There's a lot expected of them, so. If I get to, if I see where they're not capable of doing it as, as as easily as they used to be, then I start okay, we're getting close, and then I'll just go ahead and retire them, you know. But it's all based on the dog. There's no, there's no steady. That's how we are. Yeah, it's all based on the dog's the dog's performance. Yeah, dog, agency of your size. What do you think is the biggest probably misconception most handlers would have without you know having a solid understanding of the biggest misconception they would have? Yeah. Uh my handlers are outside handlers. Outside. Uh, I don't know. That's a good one. That's a good one. The <laughs> biggest misconception they would have would be that, uh, I think the biggest misconception they would have is that we get everything. We get everything. There's, there's, there's no end to it. You know, we get everything. It's not true. We have to, we have to beg and plead for stuff too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, they give us a lot of stuff, but there's times I have to beg and plead for stuff too, you know. I'd say that's probably the same with ours. I yeah. think, especially because of social media and, and people mm-hmm. seeing me out on you know different interwebs, there, I feel like a lot of people probably think that we get everything handed to us too. And man, it's beg, steal, or borrow. Yeah, and that seems to be universal. Oh, I oh I I got another. One. I think that people, I think outside handlers talking about the handlers coming over to visit and train with us. I think they would think that we're very tight knit and very insulated, and and they couldn't kind of break into us. But every department that sent people over to us, those guys were like, damn, man, you guys are, like, really great. You guys just <laughs> opened your arms to us. So I think they think that we have this 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 ego thing or this swag thing about us, you know what I mean? And it really isn't like that. They aren't. Cool yeah. to hang out with. Yeah, yeah so. <laughs> so sort of wrap things up here. Um, what's, you know, we get a lot of new handlers coming in, right, with the turnover these days as an industry as a whole, getting a lot of new folks coming in. From from your perspective, Jake, what, what do you think's – biggest piece of advice you'd give somebody starting off or somebody that's pretty new to the game it's a tough one because you know you got to be a cop first but my biggest piece of advice is is study dog behavior you know look at it as as an academic side of it learn learn about dogs Um, learn about the equipment that you're using and be able to articulate why you do what you do Um, I think as a cop you know a lot of times you, you come in you get the dog and you go through your you know, eight-week handler's course if you're lucky to get eight weeks, and then you go off, and that's the, the pinnacle of your training. You don't do any more outside training. You you stay in your little hole, and, and, and you you know, you might have success. You might not, but um, there's a lot of a lot of information out there. There's a lot of really good books, a lot of good audio books, a lot of good online classes. Even if you can't get out of your, your circle, if you don't have the money to get out, there's enough stuff out there to – you may not agree with all of it, but it'll be enough to spark something in you to – to ask questions, to dig at it a little bit. So um, that's that's my side of it anyway. Mike? Uh, I might be real short. Control yourself, control your dog. That'd be it. Well put. <laughs> well, hopefully our audience can can definitely take something away from this episode. It has been it has been a pleasure having both of you. Absolutely. And uh, we really, really appreciate your perspective. So, uh, again, thanks for thanks for being with us.